If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Esther chapter 1. We'll read through that passage in just a moment. But, but what we see, there are times in our lives um, when, when we, do not, we do not seem to see God or to hear God or to feel God. I could have held those keys out in Malachi and he could have touched them and known they were in front of him even. But the Lord has told us that he's not ever going to leave us nor forsake us. He's given us that word, that assurance. And so our, our trust in his, in his presence isn't rooted in our feelings. It's not just rooted in our senses. Our trust in his presence is rooted in his faithfulness. He keeps his word. And so even when God's hand is invisible, it's active and it's working for our eternal good. That's what we're seeing here in, in this book of Esther. So this is just a simple little illustration that Malachi helped us with here to, to, to show us this reality in our lives and in the story of Esther. Because here, you think of, think of the Lord's people here as we meet them in Esther chapter 1. When they were in Jerusalem, when they had the temple, they, 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 could, they could see God's presence represented in, in, in that. They could, they, could, they could hear Him, as it were, with, the, with all that goes on in there and, and symbolizing the presence of the Lord. They could, they could smell it. They could feel it. It was, it was palpable. Now here they are, a hundred years in exile. And, and, and these exiles have not returned home, have chosen not to return home. And it seems like God is absent. It's like God's clocked out. And, 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 and here, His chosen people, many of them remain in exile in Susa, a long ways from Jerusalem, under the, 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 the powerful and really perverted reign of King Ahasuerus, the Persian king. And so God's hand isn't evident. His supernatural power isn't visible here. His promises almost seem to be forgotten. His people will soon be, in the story, on the brink of complete annihilation. That's where we find them. The book of Esther records what seems to be this very ungodly series of events. And it seems thoroughly secular, again, in the way we talked about last week, just in the sense that it, it seems like God is absent from the equation. And yet, God is present. We talked about last week. He's here in silhouette. He's, he's working. He's providentially bringing all of history to this culmination in Christ, as we're, we're pointing to. And so the Esther story, it tells us how at this one crucial moment in history, the, the covenant promises of God were fulfilled. These promises that were fulfilled not by these visible and miraculous interventions, but through these very ordinary events. These very ordinary events. His invisible hand of providence. That's what Esther is about. And so the encouragement for us and the connection to us is that we can be confident and we can trust that God's will is unfolding in our lives day by day in His providence. In our lives as a, individuals, as a church. And even when we can't see it, even when we can't see it, we can trust that this is true. But he, Because He's told us, He's with us and He's working. The keys are in front of us even when we can't sense it. And we trust that what He said is true and irrevocable. That's what we see this morning. So this morning, we're going to just kind of take a little bit different different uh, plan of attack here in the rest of chapter 1. And so we're just going to walk through the text and sort of read through it, and I'll give some explanation as we go through the text. 
And we're just going to consider what this, what this teaches us about God, what it teaches us about ourselves, and what it teaches us about Christ. And so that's, that's the plan for this morning. So let's just walk through the passage first. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, or if you weren't, let me just catch you up real quick. We were introduced to the great and mighty King Ahasuerus, this Persian king over this vast empire, uh, the largest empire in the world at that time. And so, in order to secure the loyalty and the support of, of his empire, and, and he, and as he's preparing to go to war against the Greeks, so he, he brings all of his nobles, he brings his military and political leaders together, and he throws in this enormous banquet, this banquet for up to 15,000 people that lasts for 180 days. 180 days. Parade, and he's parading his wealth and his power and his resources and the text says his glory in front of all of these people, in front of everyone. And then after that's over, you remember, he throws another party, a seven-day party for the commoners in Susa, the rest of the folks there. And so, so while that seven-day party is going on, we pick up in verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the women who belonged to the king were those women in his harem. These would be dozens, maybe hundreds of women that were there to satisfy his every nefarious desire. And I'll leave it at that. But these are women who, who were used and abused by the king and other men in power. And so these these women, and so they're, they're having this feast in this other part of the palace that's set aside for these women. In verse 10, on the seventh day of the, of the king's second feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. So after 187 days of gluttonous eating and, and heavy drinking, to me it's amazing that he's not already dropped dead of a heart attack. Um, but, Certainly, we find in what happens here, his critical thinking skills are quite impaired. I don't know of any good decisions that people make when they are drunk. Um, I have seen a lot of bad decisions made while people are drunk. We were, my, Brooke and I went to a concert uh, Friday night, and we witnessed some of those poor decisions made by people who were drunk and, you know, challenging security guards and arguing with them. Like, that's not a good idea, but they lose that sense of ability to make rational decisions with because they're so impaired by the alcohol. Well, the Persians, they thought differently about decision-making and drunkenness. They believed that getting drunk actually put them closer to the spiritual world. Uh, there was an ancient Greek historian, Herodotus. Patrick's probably reading some of him in his studies right now. Uh, but much of what we know about the Persian Empire is because of this historian who, who wrote just like 20 years after the fall of, of Persia. And so he explains this very interesting practice of talking through matters of state while drinking uh, heavily. And so he says, Moreover, it is the Persians' custom to deliberate about the gravest matters when they are drunk. And what they approve in their councils is proposed to them the next day by the master of the house where they deliberate when they are now sober. So they make some decisions while they're drunk, they sleep on it, and then they wake up and they think, was that a good idea or not? And if being sober, they still approve it, then they act thereon. But if not, they cast it aside. 
Now here's the other side. And when they have taken counsel about a matter when sober, they decide upon it when they are drunk. So they just do it in reverse. Not the brightest thing, but this is, this is the way they thought. And so, so excessive drinking may have just been a normal part of Ahasuerus' meetings with these leaders. This may have been very normal. But look at verse, uh, we, we continue on. Verse, verse 10, or verse 11, excuse me. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with a royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So as the king is kind of concluding his episode of Cribs, like we talked about last week, he's, he's uh, showing off his palace and his riches and all of his wealth and all of his greatness. He acts on this drunken whim and he decides that he needs this grand finale to this parade of, of his greatness. And so the king decides to summons and to show off his most attractive wife, one of many wives that he had, but the queen, Queen Vashti, his trophy wife, we would say. And he orders his seven eunuchs, these seven personal servants, these guys with some pretty great names, uh, Biztha, Bigtha. Now, if I ever become a rapper, I'm going with Bigtha as my stage name. That's, that's perfect. But he orders, he orders his eunuchs to fetch his, again, his most favored, most attractive wife, Queen Vashti. She's pleasing to look at, the text says. And, and probably all seven went because the plan was probably to put her in that, that royal litter, which is that, that box that you've seen where they sit on it and that's carried on poles. And these men would carry them and it would be this very impressive, very majestic way to bring the queen in and, and, and set her and, and, and to make this just dramatic entrance into uh, this occasion where he, she could be looked at by these other drunken men. Now, of course, it's very clear that displaying her beauty, it wasn't about her, it's about him. That's what this is about. He, her beauty was a means to, to, for him to further uh, and, and boast of his glory and his greatness before other people. That's what this is about. She is a tool for him. She is his plaything. She, she, he wants to show her off before these leering st- stares of the public. That's what this is about. She is to him not someone who's to be honored and loved. He's not devoted to her. He's not giving himself uh, for her, up for her. Instead, he's, he, he, instead of treating her as his covenant partner, he treats her as an object who will bring him prestige and bring him respect and because he's married to such great beauty. And so the eunuchs, they dutifully comply. They go retrieve her. But verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. The king is not used to people refusing his commands. The whole point of these opening verses and that we looked at last week is, is to show us this is not a man whose orders are refused. This is the most powerful man in the world at that time. And remember... The whole point of this banquet and gathering all these people together is to show off his greatness and power and to, and to solidify the support of, of people, particularly of those nobles, as he's planning this campaign against Greece. He needed men to obey his commands as they went out to war. But in his own palace, he couldn't get his own wife to obey. For his own 
queen to refuse to obey his command would have been embarrassing beyond belief. And so here's the great king Ahasuerus who's just, he's flushed with power and he cannot, he cannot actually get all that he wants. <laughs> he can't get his queen to come when he wants, him, wants her to come. So why she doesn't come, we can imagine. We're not told. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled trying to supply motives for Queen's, Queen Vashti's refusal to come. Uh, you know, some make the, her out to be this kind of sort of proto-feminist. Some, some, uh, you know, say she's the real heroine of the story here. But it's, it's not, it's really beside the point because that's not why this is here. We're not told. We're not told the motivations. We're not told anything about her. She's going to fade out of the scene after this point. She's not in focus. The point is that suddenly and very publicly, the, the great, remember who he wanted to be called? King of Kings. The great King of Kings. His power, his might, his influence, his prestige, his resources, they're all exposed as the empty things they really are. His marriage is a sham, which means his power is a sham. His, his sovereignty is not absolute like he thinks it is. He, his wife shrugs off a command of the most powerful man in the world and everybody at that party knows it. It's devastating to him. And you look. Look at the next verse. At this, the king became enraged. And anger, and his anger burned within him. That's all he can do. He can rage. And it's the rage of powerlessness. It's the frustration of someone who can't do what he wants. This is a royal temper tantrum. We find, we find here this, this rip in the, in the king's facade of, quote, absolute power. His inability to control his queen. His inability to control his own emotions, even. Matthew Henry, a commentator that we know for his, you know, whole Bible commentary, but he says very concisely, he that had the rule over 127 provinces had no rule of his own, over his own spirit. He's out of control with rage. That's the idea of the spirit. This, this, this expression. So how is the enraged king who's, who was told no by his wife, how is he going to deal with this dangerous threat to his authority? Is he going to go talk with Vashti, work things out, get some marriage counseling? Is that how it's going to go down? No. That, that more personal, more logical, more sane approach isn't going to cut it for King Ahasuerus, he calls for a cabinet meeting. Ahasuerus, he has no sense of proportion here in all this because his ego has been wounded. And so the only possible response from his perspective is do what he can to restore, restore that facade, sow that rip up in it, and, and, and show again how great his power is. So verse 13, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, these are the guys that he trusted, that, that knew, knew their stuff. This was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Mekumen. Memukin, excuse me. Mamukin. That's what it is. I worked hard at this one. This is the hardest one for me. Mamukin. Not a good rapper name, but these seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in his kingdom. 
Then verse 15, this is the question that he poses them. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. If you remember after the, I know you're, if you were alive, you certainly remember, and even if you weren't, you've seen the footage of the space shuttle Challenger that exploded soon after launch in 1986, killed the entire crew tragedy. And most many people in our nation were watching. But after that happened, there was a presidential commission that was formed to help figure out what went wrong with that disaster. And the commission ultimately determined that the root cause of the accident was, quote, a serious flaw in the decision-making process leading up to the launch. And there have been many documentaries about this and outlined what some of those what that decision-making failure consisted of. But the, the NASA employees that were in charge of decision-making for the, for the Challenger's launch, they, they failed to let outside voices uh, affect their assessments. And so one writer talking about this said, smart people working collectively can sometimes be dumber than the sum of their brains. And that's essentially what the findings were. Very, the most brilliant people on the planet, but you put them together and they can do some really, they can make some poor decisions. This is what's happening here. And Esther, I mean, these are the, the, the most brilliant men in the, in the world, perhaps, the king's closest advisors. These are the guys who are supposed to know their stuff, and you could call this a serious flaw in the decision making process. It's clear that these group, this group of what wise men that Ahasuerus puts around him and draws in together, they're, they're no, no smarter working as a group here. Now keep in mind, these guys, their, their prosperity, their very lives uh, depend completely on the king. So you can imagine that their self-interest in just not ending up on the chopping block here, it's going to push them to basically say what the king wants to hear. It's, it, 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 will, it will keep them from actually giving wise advice if it might upset the king. And so Mamukin, he seems to be the de facto leader of the, this group of advisors. He's at least the, the spokesperson for the group. So verse 16, Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. You think they've blown this a little out of proportion. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Horrors! <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. What started as a simple domestic dispute between two people, it escalates into this crisis of empire-wide proportions here. You see that word all repeated throughout here. A female rebellion is going to break out. All our wives are going to start resisting and revolting against our authority and looking at us with contempt. It's going to happen. Queen Vashti, she's assumed to have this 
influence, this tremendous influence over all the women in the empire. So when they hear of her disobedience, they're going to respond with the same towards their own husbands. Her, her saying no was going to spread throughout the empire to every home. I think of, if you've watched the Hunger Games, this is like the Mockingjay or something like that. Everybody's going to, going to follow her in this revolt. So between Ahasuerus' anger, between Mamukin's anxiety, these, everything gets blown out of proportion here. Cooler heads are not prevailing. So verse 19, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. That's the, that's the decision. That's the recommendation. So this law is to be decreed. That's what his wise men are recommending. And, and, the, and the punishment meted out for Vashti, Vashti is, is banishment uh, from his presence forever and forfeiture of her crown. Overreact much? I mean, this is crazy. Just because she wouldn't appear before the king. And after she's gone, somebody better than she will, will become queen in her place. Better. I, I think we can understand what that means. More obedient. Someone who will, as we told our kids, this is what it means to obey. Do what she's told to do, when she's told to do it with a happy heart. My kids have heard that ad nauseum when they were younger. We, we know what's coming. Listen, don't we? we, we, we if, you've, if you're familiar with the story of Esther, and, and those first hearers of the story knew the end before they read the beginning, that we, we can see God's invisible hand of providence at work here. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. He, he's opening the door for, for Esther to become queen. But at the time, it just looked like the stuff of National Enquirer headlines. It's celebrity gossip. But God's at work. Even, even through these crazy, disproportionate, irrational, impulsive decisions and decrees. He's at work. So, so Mamukin's reasoning is ridiculous, and it goes like this. When the wives of the kingdom hear about how harsh the consequences are for Vashti's disobedience to the king, they're going to be intimidated into respecting their husbands. That's the reasoning. Makes sense, right? So surely Ahasuerus is going to see this is, this is, this is, bad this is not this is not wisdom guys this makes no sense is that what he's gonna not exactly not at all verse 21 this advice pleased the king he thought this is great and the princes and the king did as mamukin proposed so he sends out this empirical order this decree commanding what he himself could not accomplish in his own palace that every man should be ruler over his own household. Now here's the irony in all of this. There's a lot of irony throughout the story of Esther, but by accepting Mamukin's advice here, the king ends up doing the very thing that he was trying so hard not to do. Trying to avoid. The fear is that all the women in the empire will hear about Vashti and what she's done and how she defied the king's orders to appear before him. The irony is that he ends up uh, that, that, what, that he ends up assuring what he fears. <laughs> by publicizing this very embarrassing domestic situation throughout the empire. That's, 
That's what ends up happening. So verse 22, he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. And so if Ahasuerus was, was, was trying to inspire respect for husbands, to inspire respect for himself as the king, surely this decree had the exact opposite effect throughout the empire. One commentator pulls no punches and he, he, he writes, Xerxes, remember that's his Greek name, Xerxes, as we quickly learn, is weak-willed, fickle, and self-centered. He and his advisors are a twittery, silly-headed, cowardly lot who need to hide behind the law to reinforce their status in their homes. I mean, we have all of this detail, and I think that is the intended effect of this. We just see through. We see the cracks. We see it for what it is, and this is just ridiculous. It's crazy. It's laughable. Now, as I said earlier, we don't hear anything else from Queen Vashti from this point on. This is not, Esther's not about the battle of the sexes. That's not it. The issue is not so much men and women. The issue is Jew and Gentile. The issue is God's, God's covenant people and their preservation. I'm not saying that those are not important issues, but that's not the focus here. She, she's refused to obey the king's command. She became the victim of Ahasuerus' instability, of Mamukin's insecurity, and and then she's gone. She's nothing else recorded in Esther or in the Bible about her. Now, the question for us then is what what do we learn from this text? What 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 how how should this be applied to us then? Now, this is one of those passages, like many uh, stories, particularly in the Old Testament, where they can tend to be preached and taught simply as examples. And so our tendency is, and this is a very common way for us to just read the Bible, and, and again, for the Bible to be taught, especially stories like this. We, we look for a character in the story that we either like or we dislike, and we hold them up as either as examples, good examples or bad examples, and we say, emulate the good ones uh, if they're good, uh, avoid the bad example if they're bad. That's, that's often how we treat this. So some, some use, and it's very common, I found, kind of perusing what people do here, they, they, they use Ahasuerus as this bad example to preach against the evils of you know, alcohol or something like that. They use others preach against rebellious wives from Vashti's example. They hold her up as, as or some, some kind of do the other extreme and they hold her up as kind of this model of, for the feminist movement. Now are there lesson that can, lessons that can be gleaned from examples in Scripture? Absolutely. For certain. But we have to tread carefully. Um, and we, we, we have to acknowledge that certainly here, that's not the point. It's not why this is here. It's, if that was the point, we'd have a whole lot more information about the, the actions and about the motives of these individuals that we're supposed to either see as good or bad examples. And we just don't have much for, for Vashti especially. So in the book of Esther, we, 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 we have to become pretty comfortable, as we're going to find as we go through this story, with the ambiguity of people's motives. The writer just withholds that. We're going to see it with Esther and Mordecai as well, because it's not the point. There's this deliberate intention of the author to just kind of conceal motives. Uh, Karen Jobes, her commentary, which I've recommended, she says on this point, this ambiguity it isn't a problem to overcome in order to interpret the text but it's part of the liber literary fabric of the story. 
So don't see that as like a challenge because that's how it feels because our tendency is we just want to look for an example, kind of a moralistic, tell me how to live, and that's how we want to treat the Bible. But that's not primarily what the Bible is. It's not moralism. So this is, this is not a problem to interpreting Scripture. It's actually the key to interpreting Scripture and understanding this. She goes on and says, the ethical and moral ambiguity of the characters is an important element in the story, and it is particularly appropriate to its meaning and application And here's the key. For divine providence works through human behavior that flows from even the most ambiguous and confused of motives. That's what we're going to see throughout the story of Esther. So this episode is here, though. And just real quick, kind of giving us a snapshot of how this fits within the flow before we get to what can we learn here from from this chapter. But it's painting for us a picture of life in that Persian palace. It's giving us... um, uh, a context for all of the events that are going to flow and how to understand them. And so we learn that in the Persian court, this king holds this tremendous power and, and he, he holds that uh, proudly to showcase his own glory. And yet we're seeing these cracks in it. And, and, and yet, and in the way that he holds that power is no, con- no thought of the consequences on other people. That's not... In his mind. So we get a glimpse of what life was like under Ahasuerus. Which means that Esther and Mordecai are up against uh, tremendous odds if they are going to survive in that Persian palace. And we're going to find they not only survive, but they gain power, which is, again, truly remarkable as we see what's set before us here in chapter 1. All right, so let's move on. Second part, these questions. First, what can we learn about God here? And, I, and, I, and, I, and this may seem like a drum we're going to beat throughout, but I, I want to emphasize it a lot at the front, and we're going to keep re- re- reaffirming this throughout the series because it is, I think, what ties this whole uh, book together. But the key thing that we see here is God uses the decisions of flawed people to achieve His purposes. He uses decisions of flawed people to achieve his purposes. So God will use the decisions and the words and the plans and the schemes and the actions of sinful people to achieve his purposes. In this context, to achieve Esther's reign as queen, which is not the end in itself, but that's, that's to ultimately see for the deliverance of God's people and the preservation of the messianic line. But God is going to God is going to do that. So a thoroughly pagan king having throwing a party for purely worldly and selfish motives to parade his proud wealth before people in his glory. And he commands his beautiful wife to be brought out and gawked at by these other drunken men. That's, that's somehow being used. And Queen Vashti, who herself is a pagan, there's no indication otherwise, she understandably refuses this, this command from the king. But there's no clue in the moment that she has any understanding of the significance of what that will mean for herself or for others. But it's this, it's this seemingly totally void of God series of events and decisions and scheming that it sets in motion a chain of events that's going to culminate in the deliverance of God's people. And, and the fulfilling of a promise, a covenant promise that God made in a faraway place ages before this. And so all of these events on one, on, on one level, they're, they're entirely explicable as simply human 
human plans and human decisions and human mistakes and human events with no miraculous component in them at all. Now you just think about it. This is just normal life stuff. Crazy stuff at times, but it's just... Yet all of them are necessary and all of them are used by God to make way for the process by which Esther will rise to that position as queen where she can use that power and influence to protect, where God will use that to protect His people from a powerful enemy that's threatening to destroy them. So are those coincidences? Not at all. Not at all. Rather, they are the invisible hand of God at work. That's what we learn about him here. And again, you think none of those events would have seemed significant to the Jewish community there in Susa at the time. I mean, change of a queen? Who cares what those pagans are doing? You know, how much is the price of fish in the market today? That's the stuff that they were concerned about. Nobody was thinking about, like, what is the Lord up to here? No, nobody was interpreting that that way. It's only with the benefit of hindsight is it possible to see all of those intricate details of God's plan working for the good of His people in those ordinary events? And I just say, there, there's connection for us. So it is with our lives, church. We, have, we often have no idea what God is doing in our world and in our individual lives. He may seem hidden. He may seem remote. He may seem to be refusing to answer prayers that we have offered to Him for days, weeks, months, years, decades. We, we're, we're so earnest in asking of Him. But wait. The end of the story hasn't yet been told. And who knows how the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle the, that, that right now seem to have no logical connection to one another and how these things could possibly relate, relate who knows how they will ultimately come together. Even though we can't see God acting, we can't see Him, we can't hear Him, we can't feel Him, it doesn't mean He's not doing anything. We have to trust, and we trust Him as we look back in Scripture, like we're doing here in Esther. We trust Him as we look in, with hindsight in history, and, and we can see how He's faithfully worked. We can trust that the keys are still in front of us, even when we can't see, hear, or feel them. They're right where He said, it would always be trusting that his invisible hand is still working for our good. And we, and we learn here in, in this account that God's work is not always about this kind of slam bang action. It's not always big, impressive displays of power. Sometimes, most of the time, it's simply quiet faithfulness. Quiet faithfulness to his promises and the seemingly very ordinary providence of providences of life accomplishing his purpose in, in us and through us. So when we think about redemptive history, we tend to think about those big, impressive events, those big miracles that display God's power in very dramatic ways, and those are the stories that, that make it up on the flannel graph in Sunday school and, or in PowerPoint presentations or whatever it is today down there, I don't know. Uh, and so those are the things that really capture our imagination. But listen, those impressive acts of God, which are significant, they are... They are linked together through years of human history of by this chain of seemingly insignificant, ordinary events carried out by ordinary flawed people. I mean, most of history is just, it's not noteworthy. But God is still working those very ordinary sequences of events in ways that we don't recognize at the time. And that's, 
I think that's what Esther is giving us these spectacles to see that. We get to see behind the curtain and see how God is at work when He seems absent, when He seems hidden, when it seems too ordinary for, for us to recognize and trace His hand in it. He's working. He's working. It's one of the great mysteries, isn't it though, for us? One of the struggles that we have, if we're honest, is, and this, 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 um, this tests our faith. We can struggle here. We can have doubts. But how can, how, 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 how someone can do evil, and there's a lot of evil, how someone can do evil toward another, and yet God can simultaneously work whatever it is for the good of His providential plan. That's a struggle, isn't it? I mean, this is Genesis. I, the perfect example is with Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 37. And in chapter 50, verse 20, the, the conclusion of that is, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So in this passage, God uses a series of decisions by Ahasuerus and, and Vashti that, that God didn't initiate them and He didn't prevent them. He didn't cause or stop Ahasuerus' drunkenness, which led to the king's desire not to honor his wife. He didn't cause or stop Ahasuerus' angry reaction, which led to his seeking terrible counsel. He didn't cause or stop the king's decision based on that foolish counsel or his disastrous decree. But a drunk king and a determined queen would be used in the Lord's very definitive providence. Neither the good nor the bad actions of these pagans prevented God from accomplishing His purpose. And we have to remember this. It, it shouldn't make us passive. We just, well, what's the point? We're just puppets. No, no, no. It should make us resilient with hope, church. When we look at the current events in the, in the world right now, it's frightening. And it's disturbing. And it's frustrating. When we look more personally the events in our own lives and what some of us are walking through, we often find the meaning confusing and unclear. We don't even know how to pray oftentimes. We don't know like what the right course is. It's not just, Lord, make me willing to go that way or make me willing to walk that path. I don't even know what the right, right path is right now. So confusing. A given event in our life, listen, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, more often than not, it's, it's some good and it's some bad. I mean, we talk, it's a mixed blessing. We use that language, and understandably, because that's, it's how life is. It's messy. Often we can't evaluate the, the significance the, uh, of an event until years later, if ever. We may never know. And so to confuse us even more, there are bad decisions that we make and that other people make that nevertheless, they produce good things. <laughs> we scratch our heads on that, don't we? What little hair I have left will start just falling out in handfuls in the showers. I think about that too much. What starts out as good intentions, the flip side of that is so God can, God can bring good things out of bad decisions. And the other side of that is what starts out as very good intentions can lead to things that are disastrous and bring all kinds of heartbreak. And so, so often our, our very carefully laid plans, they're frustrated. And we're forced to admit we are not in control of our lives. No matter how hard we try to be. Even when we are the most confused, life still goes on 
And we still have to make decisions while we're confused. I mean, I, this may sound like, what a downer. <laughs> but I will say, for, for me as I've been working through this, reading through, again, we're just in chapter 1, but seeing the, the whole story in its entirety, the irony and the ambiguity in the story of Esther, it's so true to life. And therefore, it's, it's very helpful. Because we can, again, we can see God's hand and we see His presence at work silhouetted in this story. And we can say, in all of the confusion, and all the ambiguity, and all the uncertainty of my own motives and others' motives, and all that confusion, Lord, You're there. I can trust You. God's invisible hand is still active. So what can we learn about God? That's, that's the first thing. Second, what can we learn about ourselves? And I'll have to accelerate here. It's this, essentially. First, without God's grace and intervention, we're all like a Ahasuerus. I know we're ready to pick up rocks and throw them at, at him and, and condemn his sin and condemn him, his actions. That can be easy. But if it were not for Christ, all of us would walk the same path and would lead to the same disastrous outcomes. We, we would, without Christ setting us free, we would be slaves to impurity and to lawlessness that leads to more lawlessness, as Paul tells the Romans. We would just, we'd be just like him. Apart from God's grace at work in us, we, we would use power just like Ahasuerus. We find this tendency in us, don't we? we? When we have power, and we all have it in some capacity, we all have some measure of authority, but if we're driven by our own fears and our anxieties and we're dominated by those things, we'll abuse that power that's been entrusted to us. There are plenty of notorious examples throughout world history of this very thing, and there are present examples in, current, in our headlines now. But, but we also know with any amount of honesty and humility as we look at our own hearts, we, we, we can look back on the last week of our life and see this tendency in us. We, we, we will pursue and we will cling to power. Not for the glory of God and for the good of others and out of love for people to leverage that, that uh, authority uh, for for the good of other people, but no, we will do it so we can get what we want. All right, I got more to say there, but we'll move on. Second, another way we we if with some honesty we say, apart from God's grace at work in us, we'd be husbands like a Hasuerus. So I could talk to men for a minute. For for men who've been redeemed by Jesus, headship should never merely be an exercise of raw power, as it was for him. So-called headship. Um, which simply uses that term as an excuse for some sort of domineering control, it's a far cry from the biblical model. Because in reality, Christian male leadership in the home and in the church, it's, it's established and rooted in Christ's self-sacrificing love for His bride. And so we learn from Esther 1 that this tactic of, of commanding respect by force, it's hollow and it's self-defeating. Because whatever respect is given, it ends up losing its meaning. Job's said on this point, those who can gain respect and obedience only by holding enough power to command it live with the constant anxiety of losing it. And so you lay, lay uh, Esther 1 alongside Ephesians 5 and you read there, you know, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and, and, and wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church and, and husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so in Esther 1, we find 
the, the respect is demanded from the Persian wives by order of royal decree. And you look in Ephesians 5, and what do we find? Respect is, the, is this response of a wife uh, toward her husband who loves her as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. You find the same thing in 1 Peter 2 and 3. And so I just say, in our, in our society where domestic violence and abuse is rampant, and the church sadly is not exempt from this trend. Christian homes are not exempt, but we can't allow, in our context, the biblical teaching of gender differentiated roles in marriage, headship and submission. That's right. We don't shy away from that, but we can't allow that to be twisted into a false doctrine of this sort of male dominance that justifies the abuse of domestic power and tones down the husband's responsibility for self-sacrifice for the good of his wife. And so we want to rightly push back against the, the errors of, of the, quote, feminist movement. And, and there are some dangerous beliefs out there and teachings that have infiltrated the church. But we can, at times, inadvertently encourage a different dangerous belief of this sort of absolute headship of the husband in the home. And for some people, some men with more of a domineering temperament, this becomes a license for them to assert themselves in ungodly ways and demand obedience at all times and use anger and violence if necessary to enforce it. So I just say this is, this is a caution to us. We, apart from the grace of God, this is how we would be. Apart from God's grace, we'll, if I could use this, we, we will have our harem like a Ahasuerus. So I could speak to the men a little more here, and, and not just the men because... This is a growing problem with, with women as well. But before we cast stones at Ahasuerus, some guys, some women have the same thing on their hard drive. And you can it's evidence in their browsing history. The only difference between you and me and Ahasuerus is income and the ability to have it, to have physically what we do have digitally. And so as we condemn his overindulgence, we have to be mindful that we stand often guilty of the same, same tendency. The times have changed, but the human heart has not. Alright, another, apart from God's grace, we'll just gather people around us who will simply agree with us like Ahasuerus did. We'll create and we'll live in these little echo chambers. This is very common in our day. Surround ourselves with people who will just say yes to us. And, and we won't tolerate those. We'll unfriend. We'll cancel anybody who, who would disagree with us. So we learn about ourselves. There's another thing we learn, and I, I won't linger on this, but it's just this. When we've been boasting, we shouldn't be surprised if God humbles us. I mean, we, we certainly see that about ourselves. This is the, the Lord... The Lord will remind us that His kingdom is the only one that cannot be shaken. And that's a gracious reminder. It's a gracious thing when the Lord humbles us. When He pulls, pulls those crutches of, of, of feelings of superiority and power and feeling like we have everything we need in ourselves. When He pulls those and strips those things away, it's His grace to us. It's just that He humbles us. Alright, third. So we, we've, now that we've been sort of filleted, we brought low by the, the impossibility of any improvement over Ahasuerus, if we're really honest, apart from the Lord's grace. 
Where's the hope? Well, the hope is what we learn about Christ. So the door, the door is now open for Esther. Vashti exits stage right. She's, she's no more in the story. The question is, who's going to be queen now in her place? And so that leaves the door open, the stage left for, for Esther to make her entrance. And so we'll get there in chapter two, but let me just say, this theme of kings and kingdoms, it, it leaves us aching, it leaves us longing, it leaves us wanting for more. It should. Ahasuerus was the greatest king in the history of the world at his time. But every generation has, has chased the same foolish myth. If we could just get a good king and a good kingdom and have a good kingdom, then we can have this sort of heavenly utopian life in this fallen world. It doesn't matter if his name is Pharaoh or Nero or Ahasuerus or or it's a duchess, or it's a duke, or it's a president sitting in an oval office. We, we, this, it's this myth that persists. It doesn't matter whether they assume the throne or whether they're elected to the, to the office. When, when fallen, faulty, flawed sinners sit on a throne, you will never get a glorious kingdom. And some of us think, like this, if we're honest, if I could just sit on the throne, I'd have a glorious kingdom. This is what we really clamor after, isn't it? You and I would do the same things that Ahasuerus was doing if we were given the power and the money. We would pursue fame and money and glory and comfort and sex and food and drink and the company of yes-men if we could. We would not pursue the glory of God and the good of others. We do not on our own, as we said. No one is fit to sit upon that throne. So there's this great aching need at this point in human history. It's, it's crying out, where is one to sit on the throne? Is there another king? Is there another ruler? Is there another kingdom? Is there more hope? Is there any help? Will this king come? And this is, this is one of the last books that's written in the Old Testament, chronologically. There are 400 silent years that follow. And the heart of God's people, it's aching, it's yearning. Where is the king? Where's the king? Where's this kingdom? And the true king, he's high, he's exalted, he's ruling, he's seated on a throne, and he does something that Ahasuerus never did. We talked about this last week, and I'm coming back to it. He got off his throne, and he came down to this confused, fallen, flawed world, and he came not to take, but he came to give. He came not to enslave us, but to free us. And so the story of Esther falls within the storyline of Scripture that's, that's all about Jesus. And if we don't allow Jesus to come into the story and into these, through these themes of king and kingdom, then what are we left with? We're left with moralism. We're left with Ahasuerus was a bad guy. Esther was a good girl. Be like Esther. Don't be like Ahasuerus. And that's it. That's, that's not enough, brothers and sisters. I, I, we need more than that. The Bible's not just good news about what we can do if we apply ourselves. The Bible is good news about what God has done for us when we were helpless. And so, so the heart's cry here is there has to be a better kingdom. There has to be a better king. And, and this is what we find, Ahasuerus. Again, I could continue this through the whole series. I promise I won't do this every week, but this is, we're coming back. He sat on his throne. He's feeding sin. Christ got off his throne and forgave to forgive sin. 
Azuerus appealed to our depraved nature. King Jesus came to give us a new nature. Azuerus' words, they're, they're no longer read. They're no longer obeyed. His decrees are gone other than what's recorded and they're to be laughed at. Jesus, King Jesus, His words will forever be read and believed and obeyed. Ahasuerus gave people what they want. King Jesus gives us what we need. Ahasuerus banished His people from His presence. King Jesus never banishes His people from His presence. Ahasuerus paraded His wife degradingly before the eyes of gawking men. King Jesus at the end of time will parade His wife, the church, is spotless and pure and glorious. Ahasuerus no longer sits upon a throne. King Jesus sits on His throne, high and exalted, risen from the dead, ascended into glory forever to reign. Ahasuerus died and His people died. King Jesus rose and His people will live with Him forever. Ahasuerus' kingdom came to an end. It's gone. King Jesus' kingdom will never end. Let's pray. King Jesus, You you are high and You are exalted. The vision John had of You in, in, that's recorded for us in the book of Revelation tells us over and over and over and over that You're high, You're exalted, You're seated on a throne. The nations surround You. They cry out worshiping You day and night. The angels join in in the praises exalting You So we thank You, Lord. We thank You that despite history being filled with kings and rulers who come and go, it's Your throne above all that's coming eventually to rule over all. That's our hope. You are a King who is indeed worthy of worship. Lord Jesus, You are a better King. You provide a better kingdom. And to that we all say together, Amen.